Hey, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 today. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. We are so excited to talk about head coverings, right, and authority, and who can pray and prophesy in church and when. Um, but honestly, I'm actually excited about our sermon today and uh, getting into the heart of this passage and to clarify uh, some of the things that are going on here in the Corinthian church and how the principles in this passage impact us. Uh, so let's take a moment and pray before we jump into God's word. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you say that your word is living and active. That's strange, God, because to us it looks like a book. But you say that in this book you have put special authority and power in our lives. Not because it is special, but because you are special. And so, Father, would your word be entering into our hearts today, showing us who you are, creating clarity, bringing benefit. Father, we want our hearts to be open to you today. Thank you that your word is able to kind of cleave, get in there, do surgery between our motivations and our actions. Lord, help us to see Jesus in this passage today and help us to see and follow Jesus in our lives more because of our time in your word together. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So uh, if you've got sermon notes, I apologize because I created a sermon title and I intended to go down that road. And this morning I was praying over the sermon. And I just said, you know, I just feel like I'm missing this, Father. I, I just need some clarity. I, I want this to be as impactful as you designed it to be. And, uh, and so we spent some time together and we didn't change, you know, he didn't change the message, but he helped me turn it a little bit to focus a little better. So the previous title was Don't Lose Your Head, right? It's all about headship in this passage and sometimes it gets us out of whack. Uh, but now it's, uh, it's called, it's all about him. So uh, if you're a person who gets frustrated and has to cross things off, I'm sorry. Uh, and if you're not, thank you. Thank you for being patient. Uh, so today it's all about him. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, how many of you like having your birthday? Some of us, that's good. How many like when your love, it's your loved one's birthday? Yeah, it's always been easier for me to raise this hand. Uh, it's kind of funny, God has a great sense of humor for me personally. I don't, it's odd, but I don't love the limelight. Uh, some people are like, you love the limelight, you thrive on the limelight. And in one way, like, yes, I do a little bit, but mostly this makes me really uncomfortable. Um, and, and so it's better for me to be able to personally always make life about somebody else because I'm not necessarily wanting to be under everybody's microscope, under everybody's light seeing me and looking at me and knowing me. Uh, it's actually really challenging to be up here and to reveal oneself for the sake of the growth of other people. So um, today we get a break because it's not about us, it's about him. The challenge is, is this passage that we're dealing with feels like it's all about us and it feels kind of weird and it's kind of because we're wearing someone else's shoes have you ever borrowed somebody else's shoes like take out the garbage uh go get the mail um your friend has a pair of shoes that looks like yours but it's not actually yours that's happened to me before after youth group once somebody took my shoes from the front door of the house we were at and left their shoes my shoes were two sizes bigger than theirs uh, but they looked the same, right? So it was really uncomfortable until we got to change back uh, the next week. I didn't have the right shoes. They, they didn't either. Anyways, uh, so today we have to step back and say, my thoughts and feelings about this passage, I need to suspend those so that I can understand and see where they correlate correctly. Uh, and so the big idea of the message today is when church is about me, I'm bound to get bent out of shape. When church is about me, I'm bound to get bent out of shape. 
Uh, and so we, we want to be aware of that, and that's really what Paul is talking about with the Corinthian church, but we're going we're gonna to get there, because it doesn't seem to be about that, right? Because we're going to talk about like hair and hats and all sorts of interesting things. But let's, let's do that. Without any further ado, let's get into the passage. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. And every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head, which is Christ. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it, but it, pardon me, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from a woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of a woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Amen? We're going to sing a final song, now that I've brought clarity to your hearts, and set you up for success in understanding the passage with my stunning introduction. Uh, it's kind of funny, isn't it? We read through that, and it, go, it gets strange, and then there's that line in there where it gets really weird, right? Like Paul's like, it just makes sense naturally. You know, because of the angels. And we're all like, wait a minute. What did you just say? I don't understand that, Paul. Now, it's really, really interesting because for us, this is a challenging passage. Have you ever read something in the Bible before and you're like, I just don't get that. Like, that does not make sense to me. My pastor told me the Bible is easy to understand and I just read that and it is not. So either he's wrong or I'm dumb or both. Um, it is, for the most part, really easy to understand, but sometimes there's weird things in it because there's cultural differences between the way we think about things, facts, words, ideas, and the way the people wrote the Bible did. They, they viewed things through a different lens and worldview, and they had different understandings of science and nature and human relationships, and even the basic principles that our culture operate on are different. And so as you're studying hard texts, don't lose your head. Don't freak out. Don't worry don't get upset. Step back and go, hey, God, I need to understand this. Can you help me to understand this? Sometimes you might want to ask, you know, phone a friend, ask for help. But when studying a challenging passage, remember to consider the context, define the principles, and assess the customs, right? So we need to kind of peel back that veil of cultural customs that happened in the text at that point in time. And so that's what we're going to do as we study today. Now, it's really interesting 
Paul writes in verse 2 where he's introducing this new topic. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In other words, Paul's getting into a new topic of conversation. In the beginning of the book, he dealt with the basics of faith, that if you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life. And he encouraged them, reminding them that this is true of them and that when they put their faith in Jesus, Jesus made a commitment to them to mature them, to bring them into completion to who they're supposed to be in Christ now that they have faith. And so he's really confident for the church. But then he gets into some really tough issues. The first one he deals with is division. He spends a bunch of passages dealing with division. He links it to the nature of heaven. He links it to the nature of Christ. He talks about the importance of unity in the church. He explains that division comes from uh, immaturity and insecurity and, and a lack of real spirituality, right? We spent a lot of chapters talking about that. And then beyond that, he, he moves from there and he starts talking about, I just lost my head, come on brain, uh, let's get in this. He talks about food sacrifice to idols, right? And he spends three chapters talking about food sacrifice to idols. And he uses his own life as an example. And he encourages them to think of other people first. And now, in this next chunk of the book, he's talking about their worship gathering. Because the Corinthian worship gathering had gotten weird. And it was twisted from being about Jesus to being about their own personal preferences and desires. And they were developing me-first situations. And their, their honor and their culture was not based on Jesus and how Jesus honors people and what Jesus' priorities are. But instead it was based on their own power and their own authority and their own sense of who is the most important in the church. And so Paul is flipping this around. But before he gets to the hard things, he's like, let's start with something easy. Let's start with something we can all agree upon. Head coverings in the church. And what's so strange is that for us, it's the opposite, right? Like, if this, this is not the place to start in the American church. There's a lot of things that American worship patterns can be praised about and encouraged about. And quite frankly, if we understand this passage, this isn't even hard for us. But because we don't really like people telling us what to do, right? And we like to do things our own way. And we believe very strongly in self-expression as part of having a good life. This passage seems to punch us in the nose and poke us in the eyes and step on our toes all at once with bad breath, right? It's really maximally offensive at first blush. But Paul is saying, this is something that we can all agree on. So when they're reading this letter to the church aloud, which is what they would have done, they would have read the whole letter aloud to the congregation. When he got to this point, it was a breath of fresh air for the church. And there would have been like, yes, and amens, and that's right, coming from everybody in the congregation. But for us, it's like crickets and groans. So let's just acknowledge that and be okay with the fact that they obviously understood this, and to them it was non-offensive and a good thing to talk about. And then let's figure out why it is offensive to us and then apply it in the right way so that it's good for us and that we can make it an amen. And so we'll just get right into it. Paul says, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every woman and the man is the head of the woman and that God is the head of Christ. Now, this is one thing that we have a hard time with. This whole idea of God being the head and man being the head of woman, that feels offensive to our culture. In fact, many of us are like, how does that even work? Because women are equal to men, right? And men shouldn't be patriarchal or misogynistic over women. That's a universal cultural value for us. This had nothing to do with misogyny. But because of sin, people easily think about one thing first, and that's ourselves. And so when somebody is over us or greater than us, how do we feel? Not good. Yeah, that's very quotable. Eh. Yeah, not good. We don't feel good in that moment. 
Now, when did this come into our lives? See, when God created Adam and Eve, right? When he created man and woman, there was no sin. They lived in perfect equality and harmony with each other. Was this headship and authority thing in place? Absolutely. Did Eve mind? No. Did Adam mind? No. They were like, this is good. This is how God made us. Remember what Adam said when he saw Eve? He said, this is good. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's saying, God, there was no one like me, and now I have someone who is like me, and she's a perfect complement to me. I was so lonely and alone, and now you gave me this other one. Eve looked at Adam, and she was like, wow, man, you're incredible. And everything was good. But then when sin entered in, Adam and Eve, they were turned away from each other, and they were turned away from God, and all of a the sudden, there was frustration in the relationship, right? And there's this weird statement in the curse. You will long for him to be over you, and he will rule over you with a heavy hand. That because sin entered in, there's this unique turning towards oneself and one's own desire and one's own power that happens, and we tend to think of ourselves first most often and more, most easily. Do you know how much you think about yourself? It's shocking. Do you know why? You have to take care of yourself. It's perfectly natural and normal in our world to think of yourself often. I'm not trying to castigate you for that, right? Like you need to get up in the morning, you have to eat, and you need to brush your teeth, you need to get yourself cleaned up, you got to put on clothes, you probably have things that you have to do, and no one else is going to do it for you, right? You have to have self-control. You have to self-manage. You have to have self-awareness. All of these are good things. But because of sin, there's this false prioritization of oneself and one's priorities and one's importance. How much does it hurt you when someone doesn't treat you with the respect that you think you deserve? How much does it hurt you when someone makes you feel less than, steps on your toes, cuts in front of you in life? It hurts, doesn't it? Why is that so hard to handle? Because of our sense of self and our sense of injury of ourselves. Psychologists call it ego. The Bible calls it the suke, right? That sense of self gets violated. And this passage right off the bat seems to be violating our sense of self. But it's only because of sin. You see, when I see Jesus for who he is, when you see Jesus for who he is, you realize that it's all about him and not you, or I realize that it's all about him and not me. Remember in the garden, it says that God came and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. I personally think it was the highlight of their day. Do you remember as a kid when dad got home? How exciting it was. Maybe, maybe it wasn't for you, but it was in my household. The black lab Snoopy would bark. He was the first alarm bell that dad was coming home. He would give a woof woof and he would run to the front door and wait. And you know what we did? Oh yeah! And we would go to the front door and wait because daddy was coming home. Dad was special in life. Dad loved. Dad lifted up. Dad gave identity. Dad brought security. Dad brought goodness and peace. And when dad came home, it was a wonderful thing. The same thing is true about Jesus in our hearts. When Jesus comes home, when Jesus resides in our life, when we see Jesus for who he is, it's a really good thing. And we don't want it to be about ourselves anymore. We realize as we see him that he is awesome and we want it to be all about him. My best days, the best seasons in my life are the best because they're all about Jesus. Because I get smaller and he gets greater. 
And I guarantee that the worst seasons of my life are typically tied to some sense of self, some sense of ego that's getting stepped on and pressed on in the course of my life. And so I am hurting because I feel less than. And so I'm dying to myself in those moments. It's really hard to die, as it turns out. It's painful emotionally to die to oneself. And that's what we need to do if we're going to see Jesus for who he is more and more. We have to become less preoccupied with ourselves and our sense of self and more preoccupied with him and seeing him. And as you do, it just works out that you're like, I want it to be about Jesus. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about him. And so this passage calls us quickly to die to ourselves, to be alive to Jesus more and more. We have to deprioritize our own understanding so that we can know him truly. And as you do, you will realize that that is for your good. Now, God is pointing out through Paul in this passage that there's a chain of command within the Holy Trinity. Just one piece of it is displayed to us. Just as the Father is the head of the Son, so man is created to be the head of the woman. Now, in this, who is more important? Raise your hand if you think God the Father is more important. Okay, now raise your hand if you think God the Son is more important. How come most of you didn't vote? Because they're the same, right? They're absolutely equal. It's not a matter of more importance. They're, they're of the same being, of the same substance. They're completely united. It's one of these moments, have you ever talked with a couple and you're like, who's the better spouse? And they're both like, they are. And you're just like, aw, there's that sweetness inside, right? Where you realize that they both love each other more than they love themselves. Well, guess who invented that? God did. God invented that self-giving love. It's from him and it exists within the Trinity first. And so it says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not regard his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but instead he made himself in the form of the servant. He took on the form of a servant. He was born as a human, and as a human he became a servant. Even to death on the cross, he was so obedient to the Father that he was willing to die on the cross in submission to the Father. And so this chain of command isn't about who is greater. It's about both of them being greater. What does God do for Jesus, by the way, because he obeys? Does he make him nothing? No, he gives him the name above all other names, even his own, right? So that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, both those on earth and under the earth and in eternity, right? Like all creatures will bow to Jesus greatness because of the name the father gives him and so there's this display of the chain of command but neither of these two is lesser because of it in fact they appear all the greater because of it but then all of the sudden when this chain of command is mirrored in humanity we get really bent out of shape as if somehow this creates inequality as if somehow this creates a problem for us but it really doesn't it's a beautiful mirroring of God's chain of command in humanity. Creator to the created one, right? So we've got God the Father to God the Son. The Son is not created, he's begotten, right? But it's mirrored in us. The creator to the created one. And then the man or the husband to the 
woman slash wife. I know this is challenging for us, but don't get bent out of shape here. This is actually in support of goodness, of self-giving love, of mutual deference, of showing off the nature of triune love. It doesn't support misogyny. It doesn't support patriarchy. Those things exist not because of God, but because of sin. Because people think that they need to be more important than other people. Because people want power and control and significance and security more than they want to worship God. And so those things creep in all the time. It doesn't matter if a man is in charge or a woman is in charge. I've seen both men and women be abusive of their power over others. I'm sure you have too. Sadly, sin is not divided based on gender. Sadly, abuse is not held to one gender alone. It's rather interesting. It's sad, but interesting. See, God wants the structure of his church to show off his awesome love, power, and goodness, both to the saved and the perishing. God wants his church to show his nature off. And so the nature of the church needs to reflect his nature. That's really powerful, isn't it? That you and I, in unity together as a church family, we get to put Jesus on display. That's an awesome responsibility and an awesome right and an awesome opportunity that we have as a church family. It's the same one that every church family has. It doesn't make us more special than any other church, but it puts us in a unique position in history. I mean, think about that. You and I together, and the way we submit to each other, and the way we submit to God, and the way we love God, and the way that we love each other, we are showing the world around us who God is and what God is like. You are Christ's ambassador. You are the one who gets to show people who our God is and how great he is. And it starts with getting your life in order of authority. It starts by saying, God, I'm going to submit to you. We just sang this morning in a song, um, I give you my everything, right? Like I surrender everything to you in the midst of seeing your goodness, God. That's, that's important and that's helpful for us because it gets us all in alignment with who God is. This awesome opportunity puts Jesus at the center and at the head of everything that we do. It declares that his authority, his desires, his goals for us are more important than our own individual goals. Church is not about me. Church is not about you. Church is about who? Jesus. It's all about him as it turns out. And Paul is just saying that to this church family. And the church family in Corinth says, amen. And the church family at Peninsula Baptist Church says, amen, right? Because we know that church is all about Jesus. But for some reason, when we put ourselves in that place and we go, I don't know that I like this headship thing, we get really confused. It's not, it's not about power and control. It's about submission. It's about love. Well, those things are challenging to step past power and control. And quite frankly, submission isn't easy either. Any of you really like submitting? You like submitting your taxes, right? You like submitting your car registration, right? Not really, right? You like submitting your waist to the measurement of your pants? No, right? Like, we want to be in charge of everything. And so it's hard for us to let go of that control. But the very nature of following Jesus requires you to let go of control and to put him in charge. And you know what's wild? You can trust him. 
He's good. And he has good purposes and good desires for you. So then Paul moves on, so let's move on to Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Now he's pointing to Christ. Now why would Paul instruct men to keep their heads bare? How many of you grew up in a generation that says, do not wear your hat inside? Yeah, I remember that as a kid. I got a lot of, on the way into a building, take that hat off your head. Oh, sorry, sir. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that might connect to this? It's interesting that for a long time, it was not respectable for a man to walk around outside without a hat, and it was not respectable for him to walk around inside with a hat. That seems like an unfair game to me, right? Like, take your hat off, put your hat on, take your hat off, which that's how you show your respect. But that's important, I guess. And Paul isn't just there for cultural norms. It's because he is seeing a pattern that exists in the world, and he wants the church to be differentiated. The worship of God is different. And Paul is saying, hey, you're made in God's image. Don't hide the fact that you're made in God's image. But he's also saying, be different than the world around you. Now, you guys don't know this man. This is Caesar Augustus. How many of you have heard of Caesar Augustus, right? He's a big man in charge in the Roman Empire. He's the grand poobah of the Roman Empire. Well, sometimes he was also the high priest of the Roman Empire, right? Uh, this, this is him as the high priest. And when the high priest of the Roman Empire went in to worship and to pray and prophesy, you know what he did? Covered his head. He took his toga and he flipped it over his head. Now, if somebody who is an influencer and has power goes into worship in a certain way, what do you think the culture is going to do? They're going to mimic that, right? They're going to want to be like him. When Caesar is high priest, he covers his head. If I want to be holy and powerful in worship, what should I do? I should cover my head, right? I should cover my head. Paul's like, no, 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 no. No, you shouldn't cover your head. You shouldn't cover your head because you are made in the image of God. You are like God. He is your source and you're meant to put God on display. Therefore, do not veil the God who made you by veiling yourself, by covering yourself up and being like the world. Paul's saying, keep idolatrous practices out of the church and don't mimic the world around you. Okay, imagine this. A mob couple retires to Ocean Park. Who knew? right? They're getting out of the mob business. It's time to stop whacking people, and it's time to start whacking golf balls, right? Like, let's retire from the ugly business of being mobsters. But they come into church, and they're used to getting their way. And so they get to church late, and you're sitting in a pew, and the man comes up, and he looks at you with that look, right? And he's like, and you're like, whoa, I guess I better move out of Tony's seat, right? Italian name, Tony. And so you move out of Tony's seat. Now, why does Tony think that he has the right to force you out of his seat? Is that very Christian of him? Is that showing submission and love and deference to one another? Is that showing the type of Christian or Christ-like humility that we're looking for? No, Tony's been trained in the way of the world, and he matters. And it's not just that you're in his seat. He wants to feel important enough to move you out of your seat. And so for Tony, this is about him. And it's about his power and control and feeling important. And he is glad that all of you just watched this happen, right? He's looking for that opportunity to make himself important. Paul is saying, don't make church about you. Don't make church about your importance. God doesn't care if you look like Caesar or not. God wants you to be his son. God wants you to be his daughter and display that to the world around you. 
It's not necessarily about covering your head, right? It's just about worshiping God truly for who he is as you truly are. Now, we have other things that correspond with this, right? It's funny. In some churches, as long as you walk in looking nice, everybody thinks that you're just fine. But you can be a total mess on the inside, right? Your life can be completely messed up. And you can put on a farce on the outside and act like it's all good, but have nothing to do with Jesus. And no one will ever check in with you and care about you enough to look past your nice clothes that day, the pretty makeup you put on, the perfect part on the side of your head, and say, how are you? How are you really? See, this is about putting down some image that the world says that you have to be, and about being real in Christ, about letting the image of God be who you are, and worshiping and praying and prophesying out of your connection with him, not your connection to be known in any other way. So keep that fakeness and that idolatry out of church today because it's all about him and the church said amen right and that's really what this is getting at next it gets even better folks every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that one since pardon me since that is one and the same with having her head shaved Shar- sorry Sinead O'Connor for if a woman doesn't cover her head she should have her hair cut off But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Why would Paul instruct women to keep their heads covered? What's the deal with that? Well, let's look at another piece of ancient artwork. This is a vase, okay? And this is a priestess of Dionysus. And there was a temple to Dionysus in Corinth. This was the temple that employed all of the temple priestesses who were helping men worship in the evening with them, okay? I'm using a euphemism, but that's actually what they called it. And so if you were with this woman sexually, you were worshiping Dionysus, and you could expect Dionysus to bless your business, your family, your crops, your physical health, right? Because you were giving her the seed of your life, and she was going to sprinkle life all across your life as a result. This is really what they thought. You were offering that to her and she was giving you life back this is part of why cultic worship usually involves sexual rituals and it's why the sacred sex trade exists and by the way this happens in america too because how high is sexuality in in the importance of life right now if you are not sexually fulfilled as a human being in america you are considered to be living a life that is less than so we're just like the roman culture still We're getting it all out of whack. It's not about sex first. And sex is not the key to fulfillment right away. Look how happy babies are. Yeah, right? But what are we doing to infants and children now? We're sexualizing them because we have it so backwards, right? Now, these women, they would run around, and the way that they would show that they were available is they had free and flowing hair. They let their glory be known. All of this can be yours. I am all that and a bag of chips with frosting. (laughs) You can enjoy all of me, and it will bless your life, right? And so they were advertising. They're saying, check me out, va-va-voom, right? You'll notice her body isn't uncovered. That's not what was uncovered to be sexual in that day and age. What was uncovered? The hair. 
okay? Additionally, there's other weird things in the culture that we're going to get to in a minute that has to do with physical reality and the beliefs of science of that day. But this is what Paul is talking about. You have to remember that in Corinth, what were they saying? All things are possible. And these women are hearing, you have been liberated. You have been empowered. You are free to worship. The seed of life is in you. Do you know who else claimed that? All of those priestesses, right? So what are they going to act like? Those people. And Paul is saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't walk into church in such a way that you're making yourself important. Instead, adorn yourself so that your appearance does honors, boy, I got to read English apparently, honors God and does not distract others from him. Make sure that your appearance honors God and does not distract others from him. By the way, this principle is true for men and women alike, right? Like if I walked into church with a Concord grape-colored suit and preached to you from that today, would you be a little distracted? Yeah, just a little bit, right? And if, if a lady walks into church in a bikini with, you know, everything hanging out, are you going to be a little bit distracted by that? Absolutely. My, my mom goes to a Lutheran church, and they take all of their middle schoolers to a retreat at the end of confirmation, and the interim pastor, his name was Pastor Recklau, he did a really funny thing. He, he grew up in Europe. He was German, and then he moved to America. And when you swim in Europe, your swimsuits are smaller and tighter. And so Pastor Reckla walked into swim time with all these middle schoolers in a Concord Grape Speedo. That was a little bit distracting. The Lutherans are used to their pastors in like robes. You're not even sure if there's a body under there half the time. And they got a whole lot more of a look at this 68-year-old German man than they were planning on. <laughs> you good luck on seeing that, right? But he had enough sense that he didn't wear that to church, or if he did, he at least had a robe over it, right? We don't know. We just see the collar and the feet. Who could be? What's under there? We don't want to know, right? So we need to adorn ourselves. We need to dress in a way as we come to church to not distract. Now, if I was preaching down in Atlanta, Georgia, do you think I'd get away with wearing this? No, right? This would be distracting and disrespectful. So this is a cultural thing, right? This is a cultural thing. And so we need to recognize that Paul is saying, you need to be modest, You need to adorn yourself to not be distracted. Can you imagine being a 17-year-old boy and hair is the hottest thing ever and some lady walks in and her curly locks that are rich and magnificent are just blowing in the breeze on the way into church? This would be a very distracting moment for a young man. He would not be looking or thinking at Jesus, right? He'd be thinking about all sorts of other things. And let's be honest, 57-year-olds are not much different than 17-year-olds, right? I, Paul's just saying love each other more than you love yourselves. He's not trying to control. He's just saying think about how your actions are impacting others. But this is not a new thing. Oh, I got the text. I corrected it. That this, so it's not Exodus 26. That's a great text. Check it out. It's very encouraging. It's actually Exodus 28.42. So Exodus 28.42 is talking about the high priests and their garments. It's not just about us. It's about honoring God. God says for the priests, make them linen linen undergarments to cover their naked bodies. They must extend from the waist to the thighs. This is below the priestly robes, right? Uh, Undergarments in developing nations are kind of a luxury. Linen undergarments especially. Basically, God said priests should wear boxer shorts, right? That ends the debate, men, by the way, doesn't it? Yeah, anything else is compromise. 
I'm just kidding, of course. But it mattered to have that area covered to God. He's saying, cover this when you worship me. Check this out. It's not just humans. The angels, the seraphim, who are worshiping God in Isaiah 6. The seraphim were standing above God, and they each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. By the way, it's not their feet they're covering. That's a euphemism, okay? They're using their wings as linen underwear. They're worshiping God in the holy of holies for real, and they are demonstrating humility before God. They're covering their bodies to honor and glorify God, and this is good. God ordains this, and so our adornment isn't just for each other. It's also for God, and the angels act as an example. Does this clarify a little bit that term, because of the angels? Maybe there's a cause here. Paul is saying you're involved in holy and heavenly worship, and you're not worshiping alone. And these beings that were created for worship demonstrate modesty before God. Verse 7, a man should cover his head because he is the Im- should not cover his head because he is the image of the glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Okay, so this concept of image and glory, okay? It's source and expression and authority. So if you think about the created story, God said, let us make man in our image. But then he also formed Eve to be like a man. That sounds weird in our culture. He he formed her in like kind to the man, right? There was no one else human like Adam, so he made another human. But just before this, if if we rewind, there's a poem, and it says, let us make man in our likeness. Let us make man in our image let us be make man uh, in our glory and then it says and so he made them male and female right so both are created actually in the image and the glory of god they're both an expression but paul's just using created order to argue for this headship right this is his apology or his argument for this and he's saying this is just like the seraphim right this is what god desires neither was man created for the sake of woman but woman for the sake of man remember man was all alone and he needed woman and so god made man or woman for man and this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels okay so the angels were created to be what helpers and messengers for god they're god's servants now what was woman created to be a helper for man and so paul's like look look how the angels act women be like the angels hey this is actually a compliment if your man draws you close and says shorty you're my angel you're my darling angel you know quoting nas to you never mind you don't know that but he's a rapper from the 90s right there's this whole song and it was like really romantic rap it was rap right but it was really romantic if your man calls you an angel from heaven what are you thinking? Wow, right? Like, that's really incredible. That's what Paul's doing here. You are all like angels from heaven. He's making a comparative statement. God uniquely and intentionally made you to reflect his glory and worship him. This is true about every human. God uniquely made you to reflect his glory and to worship him. This is the basic nature of humanity. You're not just random DNA spun out into the universe with four arms. I mean, four, four appendages. You don't have four arms. You have four arms. How about that? Four arms, upper arms, legs, a torso, all of that, right? 
Like, it's not just that you're a random expression of the universe. You're a purposeful expression of the God of the universe. And he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him and reflect his glory, his love, his goodness, and the world around you, around you as everything in your life falls into a pattern of worshipful response to who he is. That's the basic nature of humanity. It's an awesome thing. And Paul's saying, let our worship reflect this. Let it reflect our unique nature. And so, ladies, look at how the angels worship. They cover themselves. Be like an angel. Don't be like the priestesses of Dionysus. You have a higher calling than that. You have a more important than calling than that. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, men, if you think this is a power trip, if this is you being more important with, than women, remember who gave you birth. It wasn't your dad. If there wasn't woman, you would not be here. You would not be the man you are today without your mom. So don't think that you're more important than any woman. Birth happens because men and women come together, right? We all know this, the birds and the bees talk, right? This is happening in the Corinthian church this Sunday, by the way. Uh, and so he's saying, you're not independent of woman, and she's not independent of you. He says there's a holy interdependence between every human on the earth, and all things come from God. He's the actual source. And so this happens in submission to him. It's not because men are better that you submit to them. It's just God's desire for his authority structure in the, to be modeled in the church so that he would receive more glory. Is your boss better than you? Is the president better than you? Some of you are like, heck no, techno, right? <laughs> no, they, they just have authority because God ordains that. Now, we struggle with that. It's hard. It's hard. It doesn't mean that they get to rule over us with an iron fist. Man and woman are created in perfect complementary equality. Man and woman are created in perfect complementary equality. Men and women are made to complement each other, to go well together like apple pie and ice cream, coffee and chocolate, hall and oats, summer and ice cream, right? Like they're, they're the perfect pairing and God chose it before the foundation of the world to be that way. There's a unique joy that comes in being in right relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ and husbands and wives. Singles, you're not missing out. You can be in complementary relationship too, by the way. But Paul is just pointing out, guys, you were made by God for awesome things. Let your worship display God's awesomeness. Be the children that you were created to be before him. And then Paul says this, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, if you're a Corinthian and you know what you know about your culture, the answer is obviously no, it's not right. Now, let's judge for ourselves. You know what you know about America. Is it okay? Yeah, that's right. 17-year-olds are not preoccupied with ponytails, are they? They've got other things on their minds. And so we need to be conscious of that fact and love those people more than ourselves. By the way, guys, we have the same responsibilities, right? Like men are not the only ones who know lust. Sadly, women know lust as well, and we should not display our bodies in a way that we would be distracting, guys, right? Like, we don't see muscle-bound men walk into church with tiny t-shirts on going, have you seen my pics, dance? Boop, 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 right? Like, it's not, it's not about that. It, it's about Jesus, and so nobody should be distracting for other people. And then, 
Paul gets scientific. And this doesn't feel scientific to us, but Paul is using cutting-edge science here. He says, does not even nature teach itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Okay, so scientifically, Hippocrates, who was like the father of Greek medicine and still impacts medicine today, that's why doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, right? He thought that women's long hair was connected to their ability to conceive. And having long hair made it more likely for a woman to be fertile and successful at having many babies. Now, your children were your IRA, okay? So you needed to have lots of strong children to take care of you in your old age. So if you were a man and you were thinking about your future, what kind of a woman did you want? Long-haired lady, right? You, you wanted to know that there was lots of hair there and that it was going to be very helpful in her process of conception. Now, ladies, if you're looking for a virile man, long hair makes you fertile, but long hair's like kryptonite to his swimmers, right? And so if he has long hair, it's a problem. And so men shouldn't have long hair because that's going to prevent them from their part in making a family, okay? Now, this is really backwards, right? This is not right. Scientifically, we know that this is wrong. But in that day and age... I've read the documents this week. It is wild what they thought about reproductive science. It is just very strange, okay? And so having your hair uncovered in one way was like displaying your genitals, okay? And having short hair was like removing them, okay? And so all of this argumentation has to do with being fruitful and multiplying within the Christian church. Don't destroy the image that God made you for you, gave you, and don't destroy your ability to fulfill the creation mandate, to populate the earth with God's good people. And so it's really weird for us because we're like, judge for yourself. Does not nature tell that a woman should have long hair? We're like, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't. I'm really confused here. Doesn't it also show that a man shouldn't have long hair? No, no, Paul. No, it actually doesn't, right? Think about guys in the Old Testament. Why was Samson strong? Hair, right? Long hair, right? And the, women, is, are you less womanly if you have a short pixie haircut? No, absolutely, right? They were just, they had weird science. And so Paul is using a weird science argument, but it would have made sense to them. It would have clarified things. And then Paul says this, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other customs, nor do the churches of God. Therefore, I will not take any phone calls about this sermon. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If you have questions, if you're like, that didn't make it clearer for me, I am more confused now, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. We need to aggressively avoid falling into a me-centered church mindset. That's what Paul's really talking about here. He says, you know what? You, church, you do really well because you have it figured out. The way you come to worship can point to Jesus or it can distract, and you're coming in to point people to Jesus, and I just want to encourage you about this. And so Paul's really saying, aggressively avoid a me-centered church mindset. Now, this doesn't work for you to come to me and say, you had better avoid a me-centered mindset. And I want you to be more aggressive about that, Pastor Chris, because I heard you expressing your desires for church, and it's not all about you. You could do that. But I have to avoid my me-centered mindset, and you have to avoid you, your me-centered mindset, right? 
Now, if you hear me having a me-centered mindset, and I'm having a pity party because we did not sing my favorite song all month long at church, and I'm very upset, you have permission from me to be like, I think you're kind of having a pity party there, Pastor Chris. Didn't our worship glorify Jesus? Weren't we worshiping in spirit and truth? Is it about your favorite song being sung every Sunday? It's not. I found out in the 90s there was a person who almost insisted that we had to sing in this church the doxology every Sunday to close worship because it's how they grew up closing worship, and it wasn't right to do it any other way. Now, who was that all about? Yeah, Marjorie or Mabel or Mavis or whatever her name is. I don't know who she was, but I just know that her heart was set on this one song. Now, we can do the same thing, right? We can criticize each other because we are not meeting the desires of each other. It's not what it's about at all. It's about pointing people to Jesus. So we have to aggressively avoid the me-centered church mindset. And you do that by asking yourself, why do I church? What am I really here for? What is this all about? Am I elevating myself and my desires and my importance? Or am I seeking to glorify Jesus? Am I making this about him? It's not wrong to have personal preferences, right? You can have your favorite worship artist. You can love Fanny Crosby. You can love Phil Wickham. You can love John Wesley. You could just really, really enjoy A Mighty Fortress is My God or whatever that old hymn is, right? That's not what it's about. It's not about not having preferences. It's about saying Jesus' preferences are more important than mine. Church is not about me being in charge. I'm not a ministry servant because it makes me important. I'm not a ministry leader because I like bossing people around. I'm just doing what God has called me to do because he's greater and I'm going to submit to him. Here's the heart of it. When church is about Jesus, it's bound to get into the best shape, the shape of the Savior. As you and I each sacrifice our own desires, our own wills for the wills of Jesus and the church, this church is going to look a lot more like Jesus. Remember that it's all about us putting Jesus and his goodness and his glory and love on display. And the best way for us to do that is for us to submit ourselves to him in the way that we live our lives and the way that we worship on Sunday and the way that we love the people around us, and the way that we seek after him with each day of our lives. And as you do that, your spiritual shape will start to reflect the shape of your Savior, full of love and grace and mercy and good fruits. And everyone will go, I see Jesus because of you. And I would love it if people would say, I see Jesus because of the church you go to. Wouldn't you love that too? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. It is strange to us to talk about hair covering, but it's not strange to talk about Jesus. It's not strange to desire him to be the greatest one in our midst. And so, Father, we lift him up, and we praise you for him. We praise you for his death and burial and resurrection on our behalf. We praise you that all who have faith in him have eternal life. We praise you that you ordained that the church would represent you on earth, that we are the body of Christ. And together, God, we declare that he is our head he is the one who is in charge, and we want his will, his priorities for our church family and also for our own lives. Father, we all passed the hair test today, but I'm not sure that we're all passing the heart test. So would your spirit be convicting us of the ways that we're living out of sync with you, of ways that we're not submitting to you, of ways that we're living me first? Thank you for your grace, Father. Help us to take up our cross and die to ourselves. Help us to follow after you and put Jesus first in everything. We pray these things in his name. Amen.